0: If you have a Bible, now would be the perfect time to open it to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we are in chapter 9, and we will be looking at one of the most amazing little stories in the Old Testament. I would say it's uh, one that sneaks up on you if you're not familiar with it. Uh, It's a story about a reversal in a person's life that None of us would have seen coming, but it's a powerful story, and it images for us the beauty and power of God's grace. Here now, the word of the Lord, as we begin reading uh, in chapter 9, we will read the entirety of chapter 9 together. Uh, I'm going to put this microphone down, because if I wave my hand, I will hit it. And David said is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and They called him to David and the king said to him. Are you Ziba? He said I am your servant and the king said is there not still someone of the house of Saul That I may show the kindness of God to him Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, And he paid homage and said what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I then the king called Ziba Saul's servant and said to him all that belonged to Saul to all his house I have given to your master's grandson and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat but Mephibosheth your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray the promise that you made to the prophet Isaiah, that when your word goes forth from your mouth, It will not return to you void, but it will prosper where you send it. Just as rain coming down from the heavens waters the earth, causing it to bring forth and bud, so does your word that goes forth from your mouth bring about your purposes and cause things to flourish. Father, we pray that as the word of God goes out today, the Holy Spirit will use that word, in some of us, to call us out of death into life. In some of us, to speak to the deepest concerns of our heart, things and places where we're too afraid to go. And we pray that we would see Jesus and Him only. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What a wonderful story. It's a beautiful story, very well crafted. And in a previous chapter, we have noticed. That David has been exceedingly blessed. It's been a while since we've been back to this narrative in Second Samuel, but David has been blessed. Uh, the Davidic covenant has now been enacted. David is now established as king over all Israel. David has been blessed beyond measure, and it's all come to him through the grace of God and the covenant promises that he has made to David himself. He's in a position now where he's at peace. And uh, the knowledge of God is among his people. And so David is feeling great. He's feeling wonderful. But he's also feeling humbled because he remembers something. He remembers his covenant with Jonathan. The covenant he made in 1 Samuel, I think, chapter 20, 21. And there David promised not only to do good, Well, towards Jonathan, but also any of his descendants. And so they had entered into a covenant, a commitment, a relationship in which David promised to treat Jonathan and his seed well, just as Jonathan had promised to David. And so they had this commitment. They had this uh, relationship and bond between them. And so David remembers that relationship. And it clicks to him he begins to understand I need to find out if there's anybody left now this is contrary to the law of the Medes and Persians and every other kingdom in the world what do you do to the king you have replaced and his family you purge them purge means you kill them you kill every one of them all of their seed all of their descendants why? Because they're a potential threat to the security of your kingdom. Rebellion and um, all kinds of evil could result in the remaining seed of Saul being present. But David does something no king ever does anywhere. He's looking for the seed of Saul to make sure if there are any left, he could do uh, and practice Covenantal kindness to him. The key word in this passage, or is used three times. It's the word kindness, and it's the Hebrew word kessed. And it's that hard C H, Kesed. And Kesed means loving kindness. It means gracious love, gracious. Uh, enabling grace coming to a person. It means loyalty. It means steadfastness. It's the kind of God love that God has for his people, and David had entered into covenant with Jonathan and promised to show that kind of kindness, that kind of loyalty, that kind of reaching out, that kind of getting out of himself to do for others. David illustrates for us here the power of of the gospel and what is the power of the gospel the power of the gospel is to turn you from being turned in on yourself to turn you out toward others one of the first things the gospel deals with is our self-centeredness and our self absorption Martin Luther described it this way he said every man is in curvatus in say that's a fancy Latin term meaning all of us because of sin are turned in on ourselves we are self-absorbed we are concerned about me mine and uh, I and ourselves and the boundaries of our concern is limited to ourselves but Luther says that once a person understands what Christ has accomplished on our behalf that he Died the death we should have died he experienced the judgment I should have experienced and he has given me his goodness his righteousness in its place so that now I'm fully and forever accepted by God I have a status of being righteous before him forever that kind of thing turns you inside out and you begin to care about other peoples how do you know you understand the gospel how do you know you're really getting grace you begin to become compassionate you can't fake compassion Uh, you can call it benevolence but you can't fake real compassion real compassion is a person who doesn't live a detached lifestyle from all of the brokenness and broken people around him, but rather a person who is compassionate is one who is attached to the brokenness around him. And David understood that he had been saved, he had been delivered, he had been established as king solely by God's grace alone, and now his heart was passionate about finding people he could be gracious to. Do you do that? Are you looking for people in your sphere of influence who you can show compassion to, you can show grace to, you can show loving kindness to? David is a perfect model of this in this particular passage. Sometimes David's not a very good model, but this time he is. He's a sinner saved by grace. But he begins to care about the things that God cares about. You remember God sent Jonah to Nineveh, and Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh because he didn't want God to be kind to his enemies. He hated those people. Those people hated him, and so Jonah did everything in his power not to do what God sent him to do, which was God sending him to announce that he would not judge that nation if they would repent of their violence, But what moved God to do that was his great compassion for his people. Remember Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. I called you as a hen calls her chicks to come under my wings and be secure. But you would not. And so here we see the beauty of grace in a person's life. Grace doesn't just secure us for ourselves and we go sit fat and happy, not worried about too much. If you've got the real disease, if you've really been bitten by grace, you have really tasted the grace of God, you will begin for look, to look for opportunities around you to show compassion to the broken, hurting, suffering, struggling people around you. And every one of you know people like that. Every one of you knows somebody. Somebody's name just came to mind when you're thinking about that. And how do you know you're beginning to understand the gospel? You begin to care about the poor. You begin to care about justice. You begin to care about the things that God has been passionate about all throughout eternity. And so David does this, and he finds out that there is somebody left of Saul's family. 2 Samuel 4, 4 tells us how Mephibosheth became Crippled or lame or disabled, whatever term you prefer. The Bible's pretty clear that he was lame in both feet. And so what happened was Saul and Jonathan were returning from war. His nursemaid picked Mephibosheth up to run with him, and he dropped him, and he caused him to be crippled or lame. Now, Mephibosheth would appear to be no threat, and here's why. Mephibosheth lives in a place called lo Debar. Let's talk about his name first of all, because I think his name gives us lots of information here. Mephibosheth, the name means one who scatters shame, or from the mouth of shame. Bosheth, we have run into already. Ishbosheth was a son of Saul. Bosheth means shame. It also was a euphemism for the god Baal. And so Mephib, Mephi, in Hebrew means mouth. Bosheth means shame. And when you hear the guy say, why is the king being kind to me? I'm like a dead dog. You sort of get it. Now, where does he live? He lives in a place called Lo Debar. Now, if you're a Hebrew scholar, you know this. Lo in Hebrew means what? No. Debar means place, thing, or matter. He lived in Lodabar, a place that was nothing, a place that didn't matter, a place that had absolutely no redeeming value. And so he lived outside of any possibility to be a threat to the king and so he sins. he asks Ziba, Ziba was one of Saul's faithful loyal servants who is now saying he was being faithful and loyal to David, we'll see later, maybe not. But They go and they find Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth, all of his life, had probably lived a life of of sort of introversion, a life of sort of not being involved in too much. Maybe he was very intelligent, maybe he had some gifts that he inherited from Saul and Jonathan, but he's Jonathan's son, someone dear to David, someone David had promised to show kindness to, and so he sends for Mephibosheth. Have you ever met a person named Mephibosheth? There are just certain things in the Bible you never hear. I've never met a woman named Jezebel. Maybe I have not didn't know it. People don't name their mothers and daughters Jezebel. They may say they're Jezebels, but they don't name them that. And they don't name their sons Mephibosheth. The mouth of shame from nowhere, from nothing, whose life didn't really matter. And so David summons him. Now, what's going on in the head of Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth's not an idiot. Mephibosheth knows that if the king is summoning me, it probably means I'm about to be exterminated. I am about to be purged. Surely I am undone. He will do me in. That's what's going to happen. And so he comes, and he comes to the king. And as he comes, <laughs> he is a person, remember, who has lost everything. He's living in no man's land. And he's called the man or mouth of shame. And in David shows him kesed when he comes. Loving kindness means faithfulness to the covenant obligations that is expressed in acts of human generosity. And so here we see David being generous to someone like this and the word Kesed as I've already told you is used three times verse 1 verse 3 verse 7 and so this is all framed within a covenantal sense Covenant or Kesed is love that is devoted love that is promised within a covenant It is love willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record Jonathan had asked David in 1st Samuel 20:15 and you must not cut off your devoted love for my house forever not even when Yahweh cuts off each one of David's enemies from the face of the ground and David had gone on oath about that now he's preparing to fulfill That pledge there was really no one to hold him responsible about this I don't know if he told people about the covenant that he had with Jonathan but it had been up to 15 maybe 20 years since David had made that promise in the covenant with Jonathan is there anyone belonging to Saul's family left who I might show faithful love for Jonathan's sake and so it was given this word this promise was given in a solemn ceremony And a solemn curse constrained him to act with devoted love. This is something in our world and culture that people don't seem to understand anymore. I I often counsel, I try to counsel every new couple that uh, I'm going to perform or preside over the wedding. I like to do premarital counseling. But I've found people that they don't really want to do that sometimes. And it seems like I always get this every other time from somebody they'll say things like, who needs a piece of paper, right? They'll say, why should I go stand before a justice of the peace or before someone like you, a pastor, and promise certain things? Who needs a piece of paper? My love transcends all this legal contract stuff. My love is so pure that I don't need the approval of other people to tell me. Now, if you're a young girl and you fall for that, wake up. You know what that piece of paper says that you took an oath that piece of paper is a vow that piece of paper gives the woman security all you women who live with men are giving all the benefits of marriage to a man with none of the cost out of him and you need to wake up there's no security In that to become a member of Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church we take vows before God Uh, our life consists of covenant obligations we're willing to bind ourselves to certain promises we're willing to promise and obligate ourselves and that uh, brings with it a certain sense of security if you're a Christian your life consists of covenant obligations times when you've made sacred promises In the PCA, we make vows when we publicly confess our faith before the congregation, when our children receive baptism, when someone assumes church office, elder or deacon, and of course, when entering into marriage. One does not keep such vows because it's dramatic, but because it's faithful. Sometimes you don't keep your covenants because you feel like it, but simply because you promised. You promised. You said you would. And so David calls Mephibosheth before him. And he's a son of Jonathan. He's from the house of Saul. He's from the old rival regime. And so he, uh, David interviews Ziba. They find Mephibosheth. He comes there. He's got to be trembling in his boots but David promises Mephibosheth some very important things. He promises him security. He says, do not be afraid, for I will act in a Kessid way with you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to panic. I will behave in a kessed way with you on account of Jonathan, your father. Does that not in some ways, as Dan mentioned in Sunday School, sort of, Help us remember the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, where the Father plans and originates salvation, where the Son comes and accomplishes salvation for his people, and the Holy Spirit brings application of that salvation to God's people. He has set apart for himself. And so here, David... Like the father is being kind to Mephibosheth, the mouth of shame, because of his promise to his father. So God, through Jesus Christ, saves us on the basis of a similar covenant. This is a man-to-man covenant, but there is a God-to-man covenant. Here we see glimpses of the gospel in the treatment of David toward this guy. What a powerful thing. He promises him not only protection, but he promises uh, an inheritance, a provision. I shall restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And he promises that he will have a certain status, a status position, but you will always eat the bread at my table. David's don't be afraid must have spelled relief to Mephibosheth, whose actions in verse 6 falling on his face, showing homage Confessing his servant status seems to betray apprehension. Mephibosheth knew that he was a descendant of the previous rival king who attempted all his life to to destroy David. Restoring Saul's farmland to Mephibosheth and charging Ziba and company to work it would provide all the income Mephibosheth would ever need. We don't, uh, in any case, Mephibosheth's place was not to grovel like a servant at the king's feet, but to sit at his table. To sit at his table. I'm sure Mephibosheth had to pinch himself 10 times to go, could this possibly be happening to me? A cripple sitting always at the king's table, a dead dog like me. Mephibosheth knew he wasn't good enough. He knew he couldn't add anything to the glory of David. He knew there was nothing he had accomplished in his life that would ever make David look toward him in any kind of kindness. But it wasn't about him. It was about the covenant David had made with Jonathan. And it's never about you. It's the covenant the father has made with the son to save people like us and invite us to always eat at the king's table you see but there's more David's provision seemed to go well and the case for Jonathan's promise seems to be fulfilled and he promised he would never cut off the um, promises he had made to Jonathan from his seed his son Mephibosheth Ralph Davis in his work on Second Samuel includes the following. He says, When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You didn't need to go wandering in the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay within the pages of biblical history and watch Basha. In first Kings or Zimri or Jehu to find what happens to the remains of the previous regimes the new king always needed to solidify his positions it was conventional political policy solidification by liquidation everybody knew it and everybody believed it and everybody practiced it but there's something more here what we see in the actions of David And the love David expresses, the covenant kindness and love that David expresses toward him shows up very clearly in a New Testament passage I now want you to turn to. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 5? And we will begin reading in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Notice that the apostle says here For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here in Romans, the Apostle Paul is describing the kind of covenant love, the kind of kessed that God showed toward, I mean that David showed toward Mephibosheth, and I want you to see the beauty of it in Romans chapter 5. God has an objective way of assuring each one of us of his love, and we need to be reassured of his love because we do plenty every day to cast that in doubt, but God has a way of saying, I want you to look at this. When you begin to doubt, when you begin to wonder, when you begin to struggle, when you begin to panic and think, I don't love you, I want you to go, and I want you to think about what I am saying here in Romans chapter 5. It is a love that has been proven, proven, not merely demonstrated, but proven by Christ's death on the cross. Paul sees the cross as a demonstration or proof of God's love. Demonstration is too weak. It is proof. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And that is God's proof of a, Lord toward, of a love toward us that we will never understand. In order to grasp this, we need to remember the essence of love is giving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The son of God loved me, as I said earlier, and gave himself for me. The degree of his love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the beneficiary. The more the gift costs the giver, and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Mephibosheth deserved nothing from David. And yet now he is wealthy. All his land that his father owned has been restored to him, and he sits at the king's table. What kind of love is that? It's this kind of love. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. There's nothing like it. It is sui generis. It is in a class by itself. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserved nothing from him except judgment. You ever want to plead before God, God, this is not fair, God, I don't deserve this, shut your mouth. You don't want what you deserve. You don't ever want what you deserve. You have no idea, not on either, of how deep it goes. But the costliness of this gift is clear. Verses 6 and 8 Uh, say only that Christ died but verse 10 clarifies who Christ is by saying God reconciled himself to us through the death of his son formerly God had sent prophets sometimes he sent angels but now he has sent his only son and in giving his son he was giving himself further he gave his son to die for us on the behalf of us, instead of us. And whenever sin and death are coupled in Scripture, death is the penalty or wage of sin. That being so, the statement that Christ died for sinners, that though the sins were ours, the death was his, can mean only that he died as a sin offer offering, bearing in our place the penalty our sins deserved. This helps us understand the costliness of his gift. God gave himself. God took my sin and put it upon God the Son and atoned for it, paid the price for it, substituted for me. John Stott said one of the biggest dilemmas in his mind is we spend all our lives trying to substitute ourselves for. For God, we want to be our own God. We want to control our own life. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with who we want to do it, for as long as we want to do it, and leave me the heck alone. That's how we live. But Stott says the glory of the grace of God in Christianity is God substitutes himself for us. He shows grace to us. Grace that is very visceral as you look at this passage. The sins were ours, the death was his. What about the worthiness of the recipients of this death? We for whom God made this costly sacrifice are portrayed by four epithets. First, we are sinners, that is, we have departed from the way of righteousness. We are fallen short of God's standards. We have missed the target, or to put it another way, we have flipped God off. Pastor Tim, do you really believe that? Absolutely. That's what rebellion is. Rebellion is flipping God off, and that is what we have done. We've fallen short of God's standards. We've missed the target. Secondly, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Instead of loving God with all our beings, we have rebelled against him with all of our beings. To call someone ungodly is like calling someone in our country un American. It is anti God. There is a hostility in the heart of an unbeliever, an enmity. You'll never see it till you become a Christian. You'll never admit it till you become a Christian. But the reality is, the heart of man is anti God in his fallen state. But that's who God sent Christ to save. Not people who were reaching out and crying out, save me, help me, please, I'm a rotten sinner, I'm no good, I'll do better. No. It was the crowd that was shouting, crucify him. That's who. Thirdly, we were God's enemies. This certainly means we cherished a deep-seated hostility to God. The sinful mind is hostile to God, resentful of his authority. But we cannot be satisfied with the notion that hosti- hostility was entirely on our side and not at all on God's side. In Romans eleven twenty eight, the opposite of enemies is love, so the word enemies must be passive too. The context concerns God's wrath, his holy hatred of sin, since the reconciliation between God and us is said to have been received. God reconciling himself to us. Paul's final epithet uh, that is descriptive is that while we were still powerless meaning that we were helpless we were in this condition of sin we were rebelling against god we were hating god and there's no way you can extricate yourself from that heart and that attitude you can't make yourself new you can't create you can't create yourself to become a new creation you are helpless people tell me all the time Well, Pastor Tim, I'm young, and I want to live. I want to swing. I want to have a good time. I don't want you harshing my buzz, okay? That's what they tell me all the time, so many words. I understand that I was the same way when I was that age. But that kind of attitude and that kind of thing, and they'll they'll say, and when I get older like you, when I just can't, party anymore for that long then i'll turn around and get right with god and uh, everything will be lovely and i'll go to heaven forever and every good thing you've ever said about what will happen to a christian will happen to me and i looked at them and i usually say you're helpless you are totally powerless to change yourself you are totally impotent there is no way You can repent on your own and turn to God on your own. If anybody's going to be saved in this room, God has to do it. And he gives those gifts of faith and repentance to his people. But don't you dare say you can repent and turn to God anytime you want to. Because you're never going to want to. How do you know you're never going to want to? Or that you're ever going to want to? The only reason you would ever want to is if God intervened. You are powerless. You can't stop yourself. You cannot deliver yourself. Such arrogance. I know it when I see it because I have the disease. And I understand that. And I understand. But even so, God sent his son to die for those who with that very attitude. This is the apostle's ugly fourfold portrayal of us, and it's certainly not flattering, but the Bible never airbrushes or backlights anybody. It is who we are. Yet, God's Son died for people just like that. Just like that. Very rarely rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, probably referring to somebody whose uprightness is rather cold, clinical, and unattractive. Though for a good man, goodness here means warm, generous, and appealing, someone might possibly dare to die. But God, and the stark contrast is underlined, God demonstrates, proves his own love for us A love distinct from every other love, a love that is uniquely God's own, while we were still sinners, neither good nor righteous, but ungodly enemies and powerless, Christ died for us. I don't think we have any understanding of love at all until we understand that till we understand that till that grips our affections that turns our heart how can we doubt the love of god and look at the cross at the same time how can we do it how can we do it and yet what david shows to mephibosheth in the book of second samuel is exactly what the father has shown to us through the covenant keeping son Keeping his covenant not only with us, but also his father has died to redeem us and give us life. And so, where are you? You remember in the Garden of Eden after Adam sinned, in the cool of the day, he would God would come and they would walk together and have deep communion in the cool of the day. And God goes to the usual place, and Adam does show up, and God says, What? Adam! Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? You resent God? You hostile to Him? You indifferent to Him? Do you rebel against Him? Does His authority seem to choke you? Are you is your heart still full of rebellion? Are you contemplating sinning against Him while you're listening to my voice? God, help us. God, deliver us. God, give us. Kessid covenant keeping love what about you i'm not asking about your neighbor i'm not asking about the guy you work with the person you go to school with i'm not asking you about the worst person on planet earth whoever it happens to be this week i'm asking you about you Because it all gets down to you. Nobody else is going to stand before the judgment seat of God with you. You will be there by yourself. And it will all come down to what you have done with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he's proven, I love you. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little story. But this little story sure points beyond itself to something incredibly grand. And that incredible grandness about this story is it underlines your heart towards your people, the kind of love you have for us that gives us provision, that gives us security, that gives us protection, gives us hope, gives us peace, is the source of our joy and satisfaction in life. And yet, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they would not come. Lord, I pray that you will use this word today to accomplish your purposes in our hearts. And now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who have tasted and seen that you are good. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.